Episode 41, an interview with Dr. Benjamin Gilmer, author of The Other Dr. Gilmer. Hi, this is Renee Robertson, and today we are excited to bring you an interview with Dr. Benjamin Gilmer of Asheville, North Carolina, who recently released a nonfiction book through Ballantine Books titled The Other Dr. Gilmer. Some of you may have heard this story covered in a three-part series titled Dr. Gilmer and Mr. Hyde. It aired in April 2013 on This American Life. Here's an overview of the case. On June 28, 2004, a Western North Carolina resident and family physician named Dr. Vince Gilmer picked his ailing and elderly father up from Broughton Hospital in Morganton. His father, Dalton, who was 60 at the time, had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and admitted to Broughton after exhibiting delusional behavior, drug abuse, and homelessness. Dr. Gilmer had found his father a bed at Flesher's Fairview Health and Retirement Center, which was only about five minutes away from Dr. Gilmer's home. Dr. Gilmer would be able to better care for his father with him close by. He told his staff at the Cane Creek Family Health Center near Fletcher that after picking his father up from Broughton, he planned to take him canoeing on Watauga Lake in Tennessee. He loaded a canoe in the back of his pickup truck, where his gardening tools were also stored. He picked Dalton up around 5.30 p.m., and they stopped at an Arby's for dinner. That canoeing trip never happened. Over the course of the evening, Vince Gilmer strangled his father with a dog leash that was in his truck, cut off his fingers, and left his body along a country road in Abington, Virginia. He then returned home to Asheville, told conflicting stories about his father wandering off, and continued treating patients at the clinic. He was eventually arrested for the murder of his father and sentenced to life in prison in Virginia. In April 2009, Another doctor bearing the same last name, Dr. Benjamin Gilmer, interviewed for a physician job at the Cane Creek Family Health Center. He had heard of his predecessor and knew a little about the crime he'd been convicted of, but he needed a job and didn't want to dwell on it. As he settled into his new role, he became more and more confused while listening to patients talk about the other Dr. Gilmer and how kind, compassionate, and involved in the community he'd been. Dr. Vince Gilmer had built the clinic with his wife. He was a good person, not a homicidal killer. The more Dr. Benjamin Gilmer heard about how Vince had been experiencing erratic and impulsive behavior in the months before the murder, the more he wondered if there may have been something physiological at play. Here is the synopsis of the book. Fresh out of medical residency, Dr. Benjamin Gilmer joined a rural North Carolina clinic only to find that its previous doctor shared his last name. Dr. Vince Gilmer was loved and respected by the community right up until he strangled his ailing father and then returned to the clinic for a regular week of work. Vince's eventual arrest for murder shocked his patients. How could their beloved doctor be capable of such violence? The deeper Benjamin looked into Vince's case, the more he became obsessed with discovering what had pushed a good man towards darkness. When Benjamin visited Vince in prison, he met a man who appeared to be fighting his own mind, constantly twitching and veering into nonsensical tangents. Sentenced to life in prison, Vince had been branded a cold-blooded killer and a malingerer 
a person who fakes an illness, but it was obvious to Benjamin that Vince needed help. Alongside this American Life journalist, Sarah Koenig, Benjamin resolved to understand what had happened to his predecessor. Time and again, the pair came up against a prison system that cares little about the mental health of its inmates, despite the fact that more than a third of them suffer from mental illness. Dr. Benjamin Gilmer is a family medicine physician at Fletcher, North Carolina. He's an Albert Schweitzer Fellow for Life and Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine at Chapel Hill and at the Mountain Area Health Education Center. A former neurobiologist turned rural family doctor, Dr. Gilmer has lectured widely about medical ethics, rural health, and the intersection of medicine and criminal justice reform. He lives with his wife, Deirdre, their two children, Kai and Luya, and their dog, Prince Peanut Butter, in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm so happy he was able to join us today. So welcome, Dr. Gilmer. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I guess we'll just dive right on in to the questions we have for you. I think the first thing I wanted to ask is, how much did you know about Dr. Vince Gilmer when you decided to interview for the family physician job at the Cane Creek Family Health Center? I knew very little about Dr. Gilmer. I, I was looking for my first job after residency, and this was the only academic one that was available. So I was ready to take it and, and really didn't know much history at all about what the other Dr. Gilmer had done, his crime, and um, that I would be taking his, his clinic over. When did you first start suspecting that Dr. Vince had an undiagnosed illness that may have led to his actions on June 28, 2004, the night Dalton Gilmer was murdered? You know, it, it took a while before I started to realize that something wasn't right. My preconception and bias was that he he killed his father. And so that was all I knew. And when I took the job, I didn't do any exploration to discover more about, about him. Um, but I learned from his patients, our shared patients, that he was a, a really good man. And he was, he was an excellent doctor. And they wanted me to be more like him. <laughs> and so it was kind of an awkward time to begin a career. And walking the footsteps of a presumed murderer. But I learned from them that... Um, you know, s stories about who he was as a person, and they were all good stories. He was, he was the kind of doctor that would do everything for his community. He accepted vegetables for, you know, for payment. And so it didn't make sense that he would just go and kill his father. And so I, I started asking more questions, digging in a little bit deeper, listening more intently to their stories, and they, they made me more curious about who he was. And over time, the stories became a more complex collage of images about, about his persona. Um, and eventually that, that led me to form a number of different hypotheses about what happened to him, why his brain had unraveled. What was your initial reaction when Sarah Koenig from This American Life first reached out to you about Dr. Vince Gilmer's story? I didn't want to have anything to do with it with Sarah Koenig or This American Life. I was in a period of my life that was consumed by trying to be a, a new doctor, a dad, and some um, developing paranoia about the other Dr. Gilmer. So I didn't want to be on his radar or anybody else's radar. So I, I said, no, um, no, thank you. 
But soon after, I became more consumed about feeling committed to understanding what happened to him and knew that I wouldn't be able to continue in this job um, because the job is a very intimate space. It's a small building that he built himself. And so um, I knew that I, I had to figure out what happened to him. It became almost an obsession. And so I called Sarah back and invited her to, to help me, to be a, a partner and to explore the, the discovery of who this man was. And so we started together as a teamwork um, and spent six months together trying to unravel what happened. How long from the initial contact from her was it before you agreed to it? It was a, it was a couple months, I think. Yeah, like she challenged me to, to dig a little bit deeper into the mystery of what happened. And she was interested in, in you know, documenting the pursuit um, of how, you know, how we would do that together. And so that's, that's what happened. At what point did you realize your journey with Dr. Vince would possibly help others through a book format? I never had much of an intention to write a book. And, you know, I'd spent a couple of years, like, hearing stories about him first. And after um, Sarah and I put the This American Life podcast together, we, we had millions of listeners to it. And, and so people started responding, and their responses, like, surprised me. Like, they were, they were really inspired by, it, by his story. And so at, at that point, I started to realize, you know, Vince... Vince's story really has something to offer to a lot of people. Um, but I wasn't committed to, to writing a book because I, I'm not a writer, I'm a, I'm a real doctor. <laughs> and, you know, I had always enjoyed like writing things, but it wasn't until like the governor of Virginia, after a very long pursuit, like eight years of um, trying to figure out really what happened to his brain. Um, and then me realizing that I believed he had, was in prison wrongfully. And so I, I set about on a, a legal crusade to try to get him out of prison. And after confronting the first governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, who rejected our clemency petition, I was very angry <laughs> and decided at that moment that getting someone out of prison is about politics. It's not about morality or humanity or justice. It's about politics. And so I decided in, in that moment to write the book that I had to do more. Um, and that, that's what it takes to get people out of prison. It takes a massive media effort. It takes millions of dollars. It takes a legal team. And so that was, that was my inspiration for, you know, to start writing Vince's story. Did you keep journals or diary entries along the way as you were learning more about him that helped you? So you Sarah taught me how to be a good student of journalism. So I recorded a lot over years and so when I when I did decide to write the book I, I had lots of material to go back to with hours of tape from This American Life and my own tape that I did my own interviews um, and so it was it was a trove of, of data that I could use that was very nice but in the book you know the vast majority of, of all the dialogue is actual dialogue that um, you know, some things that I, I had to go back to memory and notes and put together, but, but most of it is actual dialogue that I recorded. So it was, it was nice to have all that. I, I had much to draw upon when I started writing. That's very lucky you had it all. <laughs> 
So going back to um, Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia, so I read that you sent him a preview copy of the other Dr. Gilmer, and he reversed Dr. Vince's conviction and granted him a pardon one day before leaving office in January of this year. What is the current status on Dr. Vince being able to transfer from prison to a psychiatric facility where he can receive care? So to go back a little bit further, um, so we, we confronted two different governors, and both of them, one of which was Dr. Northam, um, rejected our clemency petition. This was after knowing that Vince Gilmer had a, he had an illness, so I'm not going to reveal it right now because it's, it would sort of spoil the story for you in the book. Um, but we diagnosed him with a, an illness that, in part, explained what happened to his, his brain. There are many things that happened to his brain, and in fact, the brain is, is a character in this book. Um, looking at it through a clinical lens, trying to look at the different elements that, that contribute to one's brain going awry, um, to the pathos that, that commonly inflicts all human brains eventually. And um, so I was really, we were all very hopeful that Governor Northam would, would accept our clemency petition, which was simply to get Vince from prison into a hospital setting. Not a, not a tall ask, especially to a neurologist. But he rejected our, our appeal um, in the summer of 2021. That fueled the fire <laughs> to write even, even faster. And so, um, you know, writing the book enabled me to talk to a lot of people and to, to, you know, to ask questions about the process, to engage with people who are directly involved in the process, people like Senator Cree Deeds, who's in the state of Virginia, few members of the parole board, other prosecutors in the state of Virginia, and ultimately that enabled me to get the book into the hands of multiple people in the cabinet of, of Governor Northam. We pressed hard until his last day, and literally during his last hours in office, he did reverse his clemency rejection. And so at this time, Vince is a free man who's living in prison until we can find him a, a clinical setting which is hard these days because the, our, our mental health system is broken. And if you are in search of a, of a hospital and you have severe mental illness, it's, it's still very challenging. Um, so that's where we are right now. Do you know if you're going to try to find a place that's in Virginia or North Carolina? We would love to get him to North Carolina, but to get him to North Carolina, he has to um, be transferred from a hospital in Virginia. He can't directly transfer to a North Carolina hospital, at least not the, the public hospitals that where we want him to be. So we're sort of dependent right now on the state of Virginia finding him a place, and so far they haven't been very proactive. In fact, he was in solitary confinement just a week ago. So despite being exonerated by the governor, he's still being punished in prison today, which is very sobering. What do you feel Dr. Vince's story has taught you about convicted criminals suffering from mental illness? It has taught me a lot. This whole saga has been an opportunity for me to, to be a student in many domains, and that's kind of how I approach life with, through studentship. Um, so it, you know, working with a legal team for a decade like enabled me to see the system for what it is inside and to, 
you know, to in- interview all the people that were involved in his case. Like, gave me great insight into what, why he was convicted. He was convicted, by the way, after going to trial and firing his lawyers. So if you're into reading bizarre farcical trials, like, his is tremendous. Unfortunately, there's only one chapter dedicated to it. We could have written, like, three chapters. But, um, you know, I've learned, firstly, that, well, as a physician, I've, I've learned that mental illness is pervasive. 25% of what we do in family medicine is, is, is psychiatry. And I've learned over the years that it's really hard to find access to care for, for people with mental illness. The same is true in the prison system, too, because it's, the system is not designed to treat mental illness. It's, it's designed purely to punish that is the, you know, that is the awakening that, that I had. I didn't have any experience at all in the prison system after many years of like higher education. I didn't know. Most of us don't know like what prison looks like, and that's very intentional. Like their their doors are closed. Like they're hidden from our streets. They don't want us to see them, um, and that's because they're you know they're very dark places. And so I learned uh, tremendously like. By, by seeing the prison on the inside, by realizing the, the paucity of rehabilitation services, um, treatment, et cetera. You know, the prison where Vince has been over the last number of years is Virginia's um, mental health-centric prison. It's, like, it's the prison where they send their prisoners if they have more identified severe mental illness. They don't employ a psychiatrist in the hospital. There's not a psychiatrist who's day-to-day in the hospital. They use telemedicine for, for psychiatry. They do have social workers and, and people like that. Um, but the, the intent of, of their treatment is, to, is overall to, to punish. Um, so that has been a huge lesson to me. You know, when you see treating people um, through, you know, through medical eyes, through, through a, a clinical vision like it's just hard to imagine that 40 percent of our prisoners have severe mental illness throughout the country that that translates to 800,000 people in our prison system with mental illness you know you you wonder why our our culture our civilization is not improving it's because we're you know we're we're punishing not treating you know we we have 25 percent of the world's population of incarcerated people live in within the United States, which is, is just hard to imagine. And, you know, back in the day, like we, most of these people lived in mental hospitals. Mm-hmm. This is before there was sort of a decentralization of, of mental hospitals where they, they decided to um, release people from the hospitals and to treat them like in community settings to try to get them to engage again in community. What that the result of that ended up with people living in the streets and mental, mental patients who were then converted to homeless patients in the streets. And so that's we're still catching up from years and years of, of decentralization. And the prison system has been, the, unfortunately, the, um, the place that's uh, ended up you know, housing most of these people. It's really tragic. His story is really tragic, and it's a uniquely American story because this this kind of thing just doesn't it just doesn't happen as as frequently in other countries. And you were working with a social worker that was working with Dr. Vince in the prison. What was she able to do for him? I know that's how you 
you were able to pinpoint getting a test done that needed to be done for him. Mm -hmm. How else was she able to help him? Well, so when I encountered Vince in the prison, after he was moved to, to Marion Correctional Facility, there's a, a, a brilliant psychiatrist, forensic psychiatrist who was working there. And he was the first person, when he learned that Vince was coming to his prison because he had threatened suicide, um, and he learned that Vince was, was diagnosed as a malingerer, which means that he was faking these symptoms, he knew from the very beginning that this could not be true, that he, he could not be like faking these symptoms for a decade. Um, he had never seen that before. Like, uh, so he, he saw Vince, he decided to see Vince with open eyes as a sort of tabula rasa. And when he did, it was clear to him during his first encounter that, that he was a sick man, that he was not faking his symptoms. And then I was able to, well, he reached out to me and said, hey, I hear you, you think you know what's going on with Vince. And so we had a long conversation about the number of different ideas that I had about why his, his brain you know, went awry. Um, he suffered like a perfect storm of about five different things that contributed to why he went crazy in that moment uh, or why he was having delusions in that moment. But Dr. Engliker was the first person in a decade like, to actually listen, to reconsider that his diagnosis may not have been actually true and to start you know, opening up and treating him. He had a team of people that included social workers, et cetera, and they, they were doing some really good work at the time. Um, you know, they, they offered him medicine for the first time. He had not been treated with any medications in, in, since his incarceration. And so he, he started treating him with medications and he started treating him like a human. And that's what the social workers were doing too. They were treating him like a human again. And so that was deeply, like literally humanizing to Vince um, and changed his, his life. He started to see himself as a, as a person again rather than just an incarcerated person. He started to, to believe that maybe there was something wrong with him that he, could, he couldn't explain exactly. He, this whole time he kept explaining that his, his brain was not working right and that he, um, he didn't know exactly how to put words to it. He couldn't articulate it, which was weird. As a, as a physician, you would think that he would be able to articulate those things, but, but he wasn't because he had this, this, this other mysterious disease that was evolving. Do you think you will ever write another book after this? You know, I wrote this book because the, the story asked me to write it. And, you know, I told it as best I could to honor Vince and to honor the other 800,000 people that are, that are incarcerated. But it's really, you know, the book was, it was inspirational to me to, to write because it's ultimately about trying to see life and other people in a different way, trying to recognize that we all share a certain level of cognitive fallibility that that we're close we're all close to to um you know to mental illness at one time or another like it's it's just part of our human brain which which is an organ and you know can can go physiologically awry but you know so i was inspired to write this this book for for him it also taught me a lot about like writing and the therapy of writing the power of telling a story um what I've learned, I think, through the writing process that's maybe most important now is that in order to um, influence people to make change, 
you have to tell a story. You, you can't just intellectualize things or debate things to the bitter end. Like it, that's not how, how change or transformation happens. And so, you know, I'm trying to learn still as how, how to use the story in this book to tell a larger story. Um, we're making a movie right now too that's going to hopefully be out in, in a year or two. And this will continue telling the story, but again, it's another mechanism of telling a story. Luckily, many leaders in the state of North Carolina are listening, and many legislators are reading the book currently, and they are they're open to having a conversation with me and others about how we can think about transformative change, and both with the mentally ill and, and also in our, our carceral system. So things are, are changing. People are, are listening, and that's really exciting so if i could find another story <laughs> that enables me to, to to do that i would love to write another story but i could not make this story up i mean this story is beyond fiction like it's in the number of coincidences that that occur throughout the the circular relationships the like I, how can you make this up <laughs> and i could never write a fiction story this this good you know sometimes Life is, is just more complex than fiction. And that's the case in, in this story. It reads, it reads like, a, like a fiction film. And in fact, the, the screenwriter director and I worked very closely together and, and she was writing, I was writing. And so we, there's a lot of cross-pollination that happened between the two of us. And so I, you know, as a, as a first time author like this, it was a great opportunity to learn how to tell a story that sort of flows like a film. And that's how this book flows I hope I, I think it's written that way mm -hmm. I really do um, when I was reading it I was thinking I you can't this is this this is stranger than fiction there's some it of the, the people that you met <laughs> the things that people said to you the paths that were crossed yeah. it's it's amazing um, but I I really encourage people to read the book it's fascinating and I do you think, like you said, our mental health system is broken? And hopefully we can find a way to start making some change. It's it's long past due. Well, it takes each we one of us. We can't rely on the politicians. We can't rely on... Um, I mean, it, it takes each one of us to, to stand up and say something. I think so. So you all need to write your own book. Yes, everybody. <laughs> all of us. Well, thank you so much thank again you. for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having um, me on today. I really appreciate I it. Everyone, I will link the book in the show notes for anyone that wants to check out The Other Dr. Gilmer by Benjamin Gilmer. Thank you. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.